Welcome to Clean Law from the Environmental and Energy Law Program at Harvard Law School. In this episode, Harvard Law Professor and DELP's Founding Director Jody Freeman speaks with Chet France, who served as a senior executive at EPA and oversaw the first national greenhouse gas standards for cars and trucks in U.S. history. Jody and Chet analyze EPA's most recent proposal to update greenhouse gas emission standards for light-duty and medium-duty vehicles and discuss how the implementation of those standards might be impacted by subsidies and incentives in the Infrastructure Bill and the Inflation Reduction Act and future litigation. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Chet, welcome to Clean Law. I'm just delighted to have you back with us for another session on car standards. Welcome. Well, thank you, Jody. I'm, I'm looking forward to this discussion. That's uh, The last one was a lot of fun, and I'm uh, excited uh, to talk about cars with you again. So just for listeners who may not have heard our first episode uh, on car standards, let, let me just recommend that they go to the website and listen to that because it's a great primer on the EPA setting standards for light-duty vehicles going out to year 2026. And what Chet and I are talking about now is the new proposal for the later years starting in 2027 and going to 2032. So this is our update on the EPA's effort to set standards for the transportation sector, which is important, Chet, right? Because this sector is the largest and growing share of our economy's greenhouse gas emissions. Do I have that about right? That's correct, Jody. Um, uh, transportation, the transportation sector in the in the U.S. is uh, roughly a third of uh, the total greenhouse gas emissions. And of course, um, uh, transportation, the transportation sector, within the transportation sector, light-duty vehicles are the largest contributor, over 50%, approaching 60% of the inventory. So that gives folks a sense of what we're going to talk about. But let me back up and make sure we know who you are. Uh, They know who I am, but I want to make sure listeners know um, uh, your background, Chet. So just to review, uh, first of all, how we know each other. You uh, had a long career at EPA in the Office of Transportation and Air Quality. You were the director of the Assessment and Standards Division, which is responsible for setting these standards that we're going to talk about today, among other standards to control pollution from cars and trucks. And you have a long and storied career uh, of setting these standards and being involved with the famous EPA Car Lab. Um, And without us reviewing every aspect of your career again, because we've talked about it before, just remind us uh, a little bit about um, the role you played and um, the importance of these standards in particular. Well, uh, yes, Jody, uh, um, I will. Um, uh, just very briefly, I, as Jody, uh, as you indicated, I have spent a whole career um, uh, working for EPA uh, until 2012 when, when I retired. Uh, through uh, essentially that whole career, I was uh, involved in uh, developing regulatory policy in setting standards for uh, for cars, trucks, uh, fuels, uh, anything in the transportation arena. Um, and through 2012, just about um, essentially all those standards um, up until that point in time, I uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I had my fingerprints on them. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, uh, the, so, you know, the last uh, the phase one and phase two greenhouse gas standards under uh, the Obama administration was one of my uh, the capstones of my career before I retired. For the last eight years, um, I have been uh, a senior uh, strategic advisor for the Environmental Defense Fund, uh, 
really working on the same issues that I worked on when I was at uh, EPA, but now for the last several years focused on uh, climate issues. And you and I know each other because back in the Obama administration, we worked together on setting those historic first fuel efficiency and greenhouse gas standards for cars and trucks, which was sort of the first generation of these standards. And I was doing uh, the work out of the White House, and you were the lead at EPA, along with others like Margot O'Gay and others, um, making sure to deliver this policy for the Obama team. That's correct. And, and of course, what we're going to talk about today, Jody, is really the, the next chapter in that ongoing uh, effort uh, to, uh, to address uh, CO2 emissions from cars. Yes, I think you and I are both quite proud that, uh, you know, we were there at the beginning of this journey. And the journey is really a journey, I think, to electrification of the transport sector. So let's dive into that. EPA has announced here a proposal. It's not finished, but it's a proposal that would set standards for the cars and trucks we drive, the passenger fleet that you see out on the road every day, starting in model years 2027 to 2032. So there is some lead time before they take effect, and they are being written about in the press and touted as very ambitious uh, standards and standards that will, in theory, begin the process of electrifying the fleet in a more significant way than ever before. Can you talk a little bit, Chet, about what these standards are designed to do and um the different options that EPA has put in this proposal in terms of their stringency. Uh, yes, Jody. Um, what EPA has done here um, is is really the, as we mentioned, the next uh, step in in addressing uh, uh, climate and, for that matter, criteria emissions. Uh, traditional. Uh, pollutants like NOx and PM and, and hydrocarbons uh, from automobiles. Um, and what they have done is is continue um, uh, setting uh, more stringent performance standards. They're not specifying uh, a technology pathway uh, that's uh, that's up to the manufacturers to pursue. But of course, uh, EPA has an obligation to demonstrate its feasibility. And of course, the next logical step is uh, the continue uh, evolution and deployment of um, zero-emitting vehicles. And of course, battery electric vehicles is one of the leading technologies that are being pursued uh, by the industry. Um, and what EPA does in this rule is set a trajectory between 2027 and 2032, which continues the ongoing deployment of electric vehicles, uh, plug-in electric vehicles. Uh, and and um, more specifically, um, they have laid out a number of alternatives that get to a roughly the same endpoint by 2032, which is around 60, 65 to 68 percent uh, deployment of ZEVs, um, and a number of alternatives they lay, lay out with respect to what what's the trajectory, how fast do they get to that point between 2027 and 2032, and I think that's what is really uh, going to be the uh, the hard issue that the agency will have to deal with is how fast do they. Uh, is that deployment going to occur in the context of everything else that's going on with respect to manufacturers' commitments and investments? So let's talk a little about that, manufacturers' investments and commitments. But before we do, just to be clear with folks, um, when EPA sets these standards for cars, they're setting them as pollution standards. That is, so many grams of pollution per mile 
right? That's, that's the methodology. And the idea there is the amount of pollution per mile driven should be dropping over time. It's as simple as that. And the question here is, how fast can you go? How fast will technology let you go to drop those grams of, as you say, greenhouse gases in this case, and other conventional pollutants per mile driven? And I think I'm right to say the target of essentially around 67% or maybe 60% somewhere in that vicinity uh, of electric vehicles or zero emission vehicles can be achieved in a number of ways. The The rule doesn't say, here's how you must do it. Is that is that fair enough, Chad? Uh, that, that, that is absolutely correct, uh, Jody. And that's, that's a good point to emphasize. Um, uh, e- EPA is, is, is really... Um, uh, being consistent with every other rulemaking they've ever undertaken on 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 uh, passenger cars and light duty trucks, uh, it is a performance standard. Um, uh, they historically have set tier one, and tier two standards back a decade uh, decade uh, or uh, ago. This is really the tier four, which is the ongoing uh, progression of, of addressing pollution from automobiles, and. Um, uh, and I will say, um, you know, while EPA has an obligation to show that uh, what's what's the fees, you know, the feasibility of attaining those standards, um, there are multiple w- ways that, uh, and the agency acknowledges this in their proposal that manufacturers can achieve those those performance goals. Uh, the 60, 68, 65 percent ZEV is just one pathway. We know companies like Toyota are pursuing other technologies like plug-in hybrids, which are already um, readily available in the market. Uh, there's other alternatives in terms of cleaning up uh, internal combustion engines even further than they are, or a mix of all those. And, and all, you'll see in the marketplace uh, all those um, pathways being pursued. The battery electric vehicle um, pathway uh, in, in, is laid out and, and supported uh, by external experts is the, is the least expensive pathway. And that's why the agency points to that as the, um, the most cost-effective pathway. So one way to understand these rules is that they're expected or anticipated to drive electrification because it may be the cheapest way to comply, but it's not as if the EPA is dictating any particular technology per se and it's also true that even at the most ambitious level, that is the version of these options that EPA could choose that is the most ambitious, there's still a role for internal combustion engines. Is that, is that correct? Oh, oh, absolutely. They, they are going to be around for many, many years, which is why the agency continued to make progress in, clean, in terms of cleaning up um, uh, traditional pollutants um, because they are going to be in the marketplace. And to the extent that manufacturers pursue plug-in hybrids, which is a battery electric vehicle along with an internal combustion engine, um, even though it's going to run a lot of time on electric uh, um, uh, off the battery, it's still it's going to have an internal combustion engine, and those may be around for a very, very long time. So um, so it's really, really important to, to address uh, 
address the you know the pollution coming from those those te- those technologies. I guess what I'm also trying to get at here is what the proposal doesn't do because we've heard from say California that there's an an aspiration uh, or an intent to so-called ban the internal combustion engine at a certain period of time, and you hear sometimes criticisms that EPA is trying to do something similar. But for the record, uh, there's no ban here on the internal combustion engine. Uh, And in fact, even the most ambitious version of the proposal would expect about a third. Is that fair, Chet? About a third of the new cars and trucks on the road would still be uh, traditional ICEs. Yes, that's correct. And maybe maybe more, depending upon the pathway. This is not a ban. Uh, What EPA is doing in this rulemaking um, is really reflecting the, the trends in the marketplace, and, and and ensuring that those trends continue to address uh, you know pollution concerns and climate concerns. Uh, this is not this is not uh, really stre- stretching uh, uh, you know, the, the analysis in any any way. And in fact, I, I would say, um, and perhaps we can get into this uh, in a little bit. Um, what's different in this particular uh, rulemaking instance is 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 just the the massive amount of progress being made on battery specifically on battery electric zero emitting vehicle technologies they are in the market in massive quantities these aren't in the laboratory so let me ask you about that we're talking you know let's be sure with our vocabulary that we we make sure people understand what we're talking about when you say battery electric this is all electric this is a car that gets its juice by plugging it in uh, it's it's operated by a battery, right? An electric motor, and you've taught me all this, Chet. This is why I can say these words. And it it does not have a traditional engine in it. That's what you're talking about. Is that they are these vehicles are around? They are being deployed, and there are many more models than ever before. Oh, a- 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 absolutely. Just a couple examples. Um, the the market here in the United States is is growing uh, exponentially. Uh, last year, uh, the penetration of electric vehicles was around four percent. Uh, in twenty twenty two, it grew to over eight percent. And I just uh, read uh, a few days ago the, the the penetration, the market share in the first two months. This is coming from um, the uh, an auto uh, association is ten percent. And and the penetration elsewhere in 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 the uh, in the world is even much greater. So, um, and 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 I'll also say um, uh, another important consideration is uh, over the next three years, the number of models are going to more than double in terms of availability. Right now, there's over just slightly over ninety models by 2025, and these are based on firm commitments from the com- companies and announcements uh, up to 190 some models that are going to be in the marketplace. And some of the models you're going to see over the next two or three years are going to be right at the heart of the market, Uh, really high volume, uh, mass-produced vehicles that customers want. So we're sort of uh, moving away from the niche uh, vehicles, you know, the Teslas and the initial, the, the Chevy Volt and the cars that sort of began this shift, I think what you're saying is we're now about to see mass market vehicles for people at different price points. Absolutely. absolutely. You're, you're going to uh, General Motors, for example, has announced um, uh, later this year the introduction of the uh, uh, Equinox. Uh, I think I read uh, it's in the, like the $30,000 price point 
um, uh, the electric vehicle, um, the um, the Blazer. Uh, these are these are mainstream SUVs uh, for companies like General Motors, and other companies are doing the same thing. So we've talked about this a bit before, and in our last podcast, we spent a little bit of time on what the industry was committing to, what GM and others, Ford and um, the other OEMs were were saying was their aspiration. Can you catch us up, Chet? Have they have they has anything new happened? I think I think for most of the companies, they were setting aspirations or targets or goals of having, you know, half the fleet or so of new vehicles be zero emission or all electric by something like 2030. Am I in the ballpark of what they had originally committed to? Oh, uh, yes. And and I, I would say, um, and, and of course, let me just backtrack here a little bit. This is not being done in a vacuum. These companies compete in other worldwide markets, which are, are going much faster towards for, towards electrification. But in the, all the major companies, every essentially every company that's in the market has made really, really ambitious targets for 2030 and for that matter, 2035. And many major uh, automobile companies, including GM and others, have committed to uh, 100% zero emitting vehicles by 2035. Uh, and if you remember uh, a year and a half ago, um, uh, the you know the major um, auto companies in the United States stood up with the president and supported the fifty percent target for twenty thirty. So this is not being EPA's rule is not in a vacuum. It, it is consistent, uh, and you could quibble about the details and the trajectory, but it's consistent with what's happening in the marketplace. It's consistent with the investments. It's consistent with what the manufacturers are committing to. So just to be clear, the Biden administration had set a goal. Uh, the president had come out and said he wants to see half of all new vehicles sold in 2030 be zero emission vehicles. And you're saying the industry stood up and said, we're with you. Yes. And all of that is important because this is a key pillar to the U.S. fulfilling its commitment to the Paris Agreement to cut emissions between 50 to 52% compared to 2005 levels by 2030. So just to put this in context, and you can correct me here, Chet, just to put this in context, getting transportation sector emissions down by reducing the emissions from cars and trucks is a key deliverable for the United States to make good on its commitment to the Paris Agreement. Oh, absolutely. You can't get there unless this uh, degree of progress is made in reducing uh, climate pollution from automobiles. It is, a, it is a pillar of that strategy. And of course, the other thing to just create more context, make sure people understand, this, of course, will reduce demand for oil, right? Because we're, in theory here, if these standards succeed, and we're not at the finish line yet, but one of the or more of these options, some combination or some version of these options will be in the final rule. And the end result will be to drive lower emissions, perhaps to drive greater electrification, if that's the least cost pathway, which of course reduces demand for oil. Yeah, the, uh, of course that's going to happen. Um, but it's not going to happen overnight, Jody. Um the requirements that EPA is pursuing uh, are only affect new vehicles, and it takes a decade or more for the fleet to turn over. So we're going to see um, ICE engine tech uh, in the fleet for many, you know, for another decade and a half, two decades. So, um, sure, um, uh, uh, gasoline demand is going to go down. Um, 
but it's not going to be overnight. It's going to be gradual. And, um, and I'm sure the, you know, the major oil companies are anticipating this and, and planning accordingly. So this is an evolution, would you say? Um, some people talk about it as a revolution. Some people talk in the language of transformational. Uh, how, how would you describe what these standards will be accomplishing? For background purposes, EPA has set standards. Many times when I was, was I, I, at the agency where the technology only existed in the laboratory, and uh, and and we demonstrated the feasibility of the technology, and allowed sufficient lead time for that technology to develop in the marketplace and be deployed by the manufacturers. And and if you look back at EPA's history in doing that, they're batting a thousand. So it has never failed. Um, uh, you know, the EPA has has a proven track record in terms of driving technology in a way that that. Companies thrive, um, and they're doing the same thing here. But what's different? I, I really have to stress this: is it, this is EPA is not setting their standards in a vacuum. It, 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 what's different uh, in this this go around is really, uh, like we talked a little bit earlier, is the manufacturer investments, their deployment of these technologies in the marketplace. They're there in you know very large volumes. And you have government policies that are supporting the deployment, if not encouraging the deployment uh, through economic incentives to deploy these technologies. And and you have industry, um, there, you know, in, in general, uh, supporting, um, uh, you know, where the direction that the that EPA is going. They're going to quibble for sure on on some of the regulatory details, and that's normal at this stage of the rulemaking process. That will get sorted out. But my expectation at the end of the day that this is going to be a really good news story uh, for the country, for the consumer, and for the automobile industry. So let's talk a little bit about each of the things you mentioned there about the policies that are supporting this. But I also want to make sure to emphasize something you said about this rulemaking being different in a sense from the past in in the sense that the technology is out there. So you talked about EPA's role in in technology forcing, you know, basing standards on technology that's only demonstrated in the lab. That sort of might strike a, a newcomer who to this process as a little odd. I mean, how can an agency uh, require the auto manufacturers historically to have met pollution standards based on stuff that's only in a lab? I mean, that sounds like a huge power that an agency has and I think the answer is the Clean Air Act. Am I right about that? Yeah, it's rare uh, authority uh, that's been in the act since since its inception, um, which allows the agency to to tech, as you said, to set technology forcing standards. Uh, and, and it's and it's a way, and it's proven um, that um, it's a way of advancing technological developments. And the car of today. Um, you know, with computer, uh, after treatment, um, you know, advanced fuel systems, uh, you, you name it, even, even hybrids and, uh, and other types of technologies that are widespread are a result of that technology forcing standards that have taken place over the last four decades, um, uh, federally and in California. And, and it's been done in a way that, the, the consumer is getting a much better product, uh, better performance, better reliability, um, and the environment is is benefiting dramatically. The em- emissions from today's cars are are 
dramatically reduced over what they were four decades ago, over well over 95% reduction in emissions. That's a stunning figure. And when you talk about emissions reduction, just to make it real for people, that's public health right there. Yeah. I mean, you talk about pollution dropping from vehicles, you're talking about real public health impacts in terms of morbidity and mortality from exposure to these pollutants. And now we have climate change. That's a major, major urgent concern. And that's why in the last at least 10 years or so, the EPA has been regulating greenhouse gases from vehicles uh, as well as the traditional pollutants. And the most vivid example of what you're talking about, the history you're talking about that I always like to bring up is the catalytic converter, you know, which is something people understand that, you know, in the past, the standards that EPA set drove widespread adoption of the catalytic converter. So there's this long history, if I'm right about it, Chet, of the standards pushing manufacturers, giving them lead time so they can plan their models, so they can ramp up to meet those standards. But there's a very long history of doing this, and it results in the technological development and deployment that you've just described. That, that is exactly correct. And, and it's done. And it's done in a very, very careful way by the agency uh, uh, in terms of... Um, the, the, looking at the, the feasibility, looking at the cost, um, and you know the agency has, and again, it's a proven track record, um, and and, it's, and and again, it, it extends to the rule that we're talking about today, in terms of putting in place um, standards that allow the companies to thrive. The agency's not in the business of trying to you know, hurt the industry. It, it is a way of reconciling the environment with the automobile in a way that, that enhances consumer value and allows companies to continue uh, thriving in the marketplace. And just so people who may not be legally so savvy understand this, all of the standard setting decision making is governed by the Clean Air Act, which very specifically says that the agency must take cost into account and must provide lead time. And so the, the agency is not making this up as it goes along. It's in the Clean Air Act how it must set these standards. Right, Chet? Yeah, ab absolutely. And and lead time um, is a really, really critical component of setting standards. And and again, it depends upon the you know the specific rulemaking. Um, in in this case, the agency is giving uh, you know five to you know eight years or more, ten years, uh, nearly ten years lead time. Um, uh, these these standards don't go into effect overnight, and and you're going to continue in the in the case of this rule, they can continue a, a deployment of, of of electric vehicles. Um, so there's not going to be an abrupt uh, cliff uh, where these standards all of a sudden put new you know uh, dramatic new requirements on on the automo on the automobile sector. And as I mentioned earlier, is you know part of the um, the concern I think will be central in the rulemaking will be not necessarily, you know, arguments over the end point. It's going to be what does that trajectory look like in the context of uh, how uh, electric vehicles, zero emitting vehicles are being deployed in the marketplace between now and 2027. So to get really nerdy for just a moment, and we, we, we can't help it. We have to get nerdy in these conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Just to give people a feeling for what is it the industry will sort of be pressing and prodding and uh, fighting about between this time and the, the final rule? The kinds of things they're in there arguing for and against would be, give me an example. Well, um, and, and a lot of this it, 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 you can find in, in their public statements around uh, the recent proposal. So, um, and, and I'll allude to those since, um, but 
uh, my takeaway is, is really, again, to emphasize, you know, what is what does that trajectory look like in 2027 through 2030, for example? How uh, going from 2026, the existing standards to 2027, how big of a jump is that? Um, another thing will be, uh, and, and Jody, you know this, um, there's another agency in the government that regulates fuel economy, which is NHTSA, and that's and they set CAFE standards. In the phase one, phase two rule, uh, you know that those, you know, under the Obama administration, those programs were coordinated in a way that allowed the companies to produce one fleet nationwide. Yes, we, we worked very hard to have yeah. everybody row in the same direction because yeah. just to jump in, you know, NHTSA sets fuel efficiency standards. They're not pollution standards. They're miles per gallon standards. And we had to kind of reconcile that to make sure the companies had, as you say, one single target to meet. And why is it different now, Chet? Well, um, EPA has gone ahead and issued its proposal, um, and the anticipation is that uh, DOT and NHTSA specifically will be issuing theirs in the next month, a couple months, um, and and the auto co- companies are concerned that how much coordination is there going to be between EPA and NHTSA, and I think the administration has to address that. There's there's no question about that, and I think it's absolutely fair. Uh, concern uh, uh, that these programs don't conflict. Um, and so that's going to be a, a major issue. Uh, and other ones will be, um, you know, how fast is the infrastructure being de- you know, developed and deployed to support these, uh, uh, the numbers that EPA is contemplating. So like charging, EV charging infrastructure yeah. and the support needed from the grid, et cetera. So let, let's talk a little bit about that. Now that we sort of have a sense of what the proposal is and the options EPA has included, we, we've talked about a range of, of uh, standards. It might be something 60 to 67 percent expectation of uh, zero emission vehicles, right, is sort of the endpoint target there. They'll land somewhere in that range. There'll be sort of a, a landing place for how quickly they ramp up and all the things you've described. Um, there might be some compliance flexibilities. Can you give us just a sense before I move on to of that, like what might EPA be able to offer the companies to make it a bit easier to comply in the earlier years? Give me give me sort of a sense of what they could do there. Well, uh there's a lot of uh, uh, precedent for giving manufacturers uh, compliance flexibility um, uh, uh, in terms of complying with the standards, and that there's a lot of mechanisms in the rule. Uh, I, this is going to get into the weeds, but yeah, you know they allow companies to average across their fleet and maybe trade credits, uh, trade credits among uh, among companies. Exactly, exactly. So th- there's a number of these, uh, and 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 the other thing too, what they do, uh, I mentioned that they're also controlling setting standards tighter standards for criteria pollutants they phase those in over in the fleet over you know four three or four years so um and, and those are all we'll get comments on epa will weigh those comments and make, make necessary adjustments but there, there's always a lot of creativity uh, exercised uh, in terms of you know managing the transition and epa has historically tried to make this as achievable at lowest cost possible. I, I think what I'm getting at is these compliance flexibilities are all about helping the companies, whatever fleets those particular companies produce, right? Whatever balance and mix of vehicles that particular company makes, 
EPA tries to work with each company to make it possible for them to comply given the products they make. Is that is that a fair statement? That, that's exactly right. And, and, and uh, an example of, of that is embedded in the program. This is not new to to this specific rule, it's a carryover from the previous rules, is uh, is they set standards based upon the size of the vehicle, the footprint of the vehicle, how big the vehicle is. So, for example, uh, a, a full-size pickup truck has a little bit uh, uh, a more relaxed standard compared to a small automobile. So, embedded in the rule and the design of the rule is, the, is not to penalize uh, companies that ha- happen to have different product mixes um, you know, and allows them to have a level playing field in terms of their competition. So when you sometimes hear people say, oh, you know, these EPA standards are trying to drive us all into small little cars, it's actually not true at all. No, no. no. And in fact, I, I will say, um, if you look at what's happening in the marketplace, um, uh, where are some of these uh, zero-emitting technologies being deployed first? It's you know for the Ford full-size pickup truck, the Lightning. They can't sell them. Uh, they you know they're getting more demand than they can make on these vehicles. Or the Cadillac Lyric, I think we've talked about before. Lyric, yeah. And then you have other companies, um, GM and, and and Stellantis, racing to get you know these full-size vehicles uh, electrified, and that's because there's demand for them. And um, so you know, it, it's and it's a market opportunity for these companies. Yeah. Two things I want to make sure to get in the conversation. One is how fast other countries are moving and where we sit compared to them. I want to put this in a little global context because we're so focused on the Environmental Protection Agency standards. We're so focused on the U.S. and what it's doing uh, in this sector, transportation sector. Um, but we often forget that there are many countries that are ahead of us. And in some sense, we've been a laggard. Can you speak a little bit to that? Oh, oh, oh of course. Um and we alluded to this earlier in the conversation that the marketplace is driving electrification. Take Europe, for example. They're far ahead of deploying electric vehicles. And the companies that made, the companies that participate, you know, the Ford and Daimler and other companies, Stellantis, that compete in those worldwide markets are making the same commitments in Europe. Uh, Europe is, uh, I, th- I think at this point, is is around, um, you know, eight, 17, 18 percent um, uh, uh, electrified vehicles in the marketplace. And they're, they're uh, aggressively um, moving ahead to electrify their, um, their fleets. Um, and uh, if you look at co- co- countries like Norway, you know, the two thirds of their fleet are already electric vehicles. So the progress is, is, is really moving you know, the progress towards electrifying is moving rapidly, and, and I would say more rapidly in other markets like um, like Europe. And can you say something about China and how it's moving on this front? Yeah, a, a very similar trend. Uh, and, and, you know, one of the challenges is a lot of the, you know, you know, a lot of the battery components and batteries themselves are produced in China. Yeah. And in part of, you know, part of the, you know, the, the policies that Congress is uh, um, Implemented is to to change that trend and, and to and to build those battery plants in the United States and manufacturing plants for electric vehicles in the United States. So, uh, yeah, I would say China is probably right now the center of production uh, for some of these critical components. 
So that's a perfect segue to a topic that I do want us to get to, which is, first of all, um, what are the subsidies and incentives that Congress has passed to help spur this transition to um, zero emission vehicles? And, you know, what has Congress done in the infrastructure bill from 2021 and the Inflation Reduction Act? Uh, Both of those pieces of legislation have incentives and subsidies that are really important to spur this transition. Can you speak a little bit to those measures? Yes, uh, I, I can, uh, Jody. Um, there's two, two, to me, there's really two broad categories of incentives. Um, one is the consumer incentives, which are, which are really, really um, uh, uh, important. Uh, and um, and the magnitude is 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 substantial, up to um, seventy five hundred dollars per vehicle. And I'll get into that in a second. And then there's a whole suite of manufacturing incentives in terms of uh, building uh, battery plants, uh, uh, battery components, uh, electric vehicles in the United States, and and, and those are those are incentivized uh, you know, the deployment of those of, of manufacturing uh, facilities in the United States. Um, and all of it is intended to to try to um, to um, uh, have more domestic content um, in in um, in uh, zero emitting vehicles that are produced um, in the United States. And in fact, if you look at the if you look at the consumer credits, the seventy five hundred dollars, it's tied to where the battery is components are sourced, where they're made, where the electric vehicle is made. And in order to get um, uh, the full credit, it, it's got to be de- uh, uh, sourced in North America. So isn't that a potential obstacle here, Chet? Again, to get nerdy for just a minute, isn't it difficult if Congress has said, okay, consumer, you can get X amount of credit, $7,500 to buy one of these vehicles, but only if it can be shown by the manufacturer that a percentage, a certain percentage threshold of the battery components or the critical minerals are sourced in the U.S. or friendly free trade countries, which I think is how the provision is written. That's a constraint, right? Because wouldn't some of the auto manufacturers say, well, look, we don't currently have the capacity to make all those components here. We we are getting our critical minerals from countries, not all of which are free trade nations with us, don't have agreements with us. So isn't this a potential problem or obstacle to actually getting these credits out to many, many millions of consumers? Um, y- y- yes. Um, and and that there's some tension in terms of how Treasury is implementing those regulations. In the in the underlying statute, uh, those credits uh, they allow a phase in. So this is the Inflation Reduction Act set this up, and Treasury because they're tax credits, it's Treasury, the tax agency, that's writing the rules. Just to just to clarify, right? And their rules will will uh, make it clear which vehicles and which vehicles won't qualify. And of course, the companies, the tension there is companies want more vehicles. Um, and and you know and you know there's so there's some tension there in terms of. Um, which vehicles qualify, but I, I'll, I will say that you, you know this is important, Jody. Is that this is a transitional issue? If you look at what's happening in the United States in terms of investments in manufacturing, um, EVs, and batteries, 
it is it, it is growing substantially. Um, you know, a couple couple key statistics uh, by twenty, and these this is based on uh, manufacturer announcements. Um, you know, so these are firm announcements by the companies. By 2026, there's going to be enough capacity um, to build over 4 million electric vehicles in the United States. Uh, in terms of battery capacity by 2026, there's going to be enough production capacity to support supplying over 11 million vehicles. So, you know, so what we're seeing, we have to differentiate to what we're seeing in the marketplace today in terms of vehicles qualifying for incentives versus what's going to happen in 25 and 2026. The bottom line is the what's happening in the marketplace uh, is exactly what the RIA was intended to incentivize, which was would be investment in U.S. manufacturing, and that is exactly what's happening. And what do you think about critical minerals? We hear a lot of people say, look, the the countries with the most, like lithium, cobalt, etc., that go into these batteries are not necessarily countries that have free trade agreements with the United States, and what are we going to do? We won't have enough critical minerals. What's the answer to that objection? Um, it is a real issue. Um uh, I will say just a, 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 a few things. Uh, one, uh, you know, I do, we, you know, it's reported every day. The companies are trying to get, you know, this is number one, you know, one of the top issues on their priority list. Uh, they would not be building these factories in the United States um, uh, to the tune of, you know, you know, investments over $120 billion between now and 2026. They would not, it was just unprecedented unless, uh, you know, they saw a pathway to to procure these critical minerals. Now, you know, is it going to be uh, the markets a, a little, uh, uh, you know, when will the markets reach stability? Um, that, that, you know, that may take a few years. Uh, but the companies are actively trying to, to deal with that. Um, I just came across uh, an article that General Motors announced uh, a uh, 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 an investment partner in terms of uh, 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 mining, so you're going to see different business models um, and different uh, avenues for for procuring these critical minerals. But uh, I think uh, most uh, most experts in the area, by the time frame that EPA, you know, in the 2030 time frame, the markets will be stabilizing. And and the other th the other thing too is these these batteries, these critical minerals are are really uh, uh, ideal for uh, recycling. So in, in the long run, um, there's other market pressures that will help um, uh, stabilize the markets. So it sounds like you're saying, look, there may be some bumps along the road, if you will. Um, there are some things to be worked out, like how will these tax credits operate? What cars will qualify? Um, and in addition, you know, there will be some timing issues around how to secure enough critical minerals. But I think what I'm hearing you say is over the medium term and in time to meet these standards, certainly these things should work themselves out. Yeah. yeah. And it's not slowing down. I, I will say that, you know, sort of the, you know, sort of the proof is in the pudding. I mean, if you look, EPA standards don't go into effect until 2027, right. assuming they finalize the, the, um, as proposed. Um but every, if you look at the market trends and what the companies are saying, it's not slowing down their deployment and offering of models, their production plans. Uh, so you know we don't have access to you know you know to the details on how they're procuring these critical minerals. But it's got to be at the top of the list of every one of these companies. And um, and and if you look at what's happening in the marketplace, um, I have high confidence that this is going to sort out. 
You also said to me once privately when we were nerding out just between you and me that there are new battery chemistries yes. that may actually be developed and reduce the need for these minerals, which is quite exciting. Yeah, I, I assure you every company that's a major company that's playing in this space um, is looking at ways to reduce uh, the uh, mineral co- critical mineral content and looking at technologies that that, that uh, reduce the, the, the need um, uh, for these critical minerals. And there's other technologies on, on the horizon, such as solid-state uh, batteries, um, that have the potential to really reduce the, the, the reliance on these critical minerals. So, yeah, uh, there's a lot of things that are coming together that, that, um, that will address this. And there's nothing like the marketplace to, 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 to sort these sort of things out. Yeah, I mean, I think the EPA rule, uh, as EPA rules in this space always have done, presupposes ingenuity on the part of the companies and has faith that they will work out how to meet these standards and make great cars. I mean, I think that's always been the working presumption of the agency and the industry's always made it, right? Yeah, and and, and, and Jody, I, 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 you know, we did not mention explicitly but these vehicles, um, the reason there's such growth in the market is they're a, a really great economic proposition for the consumer. You're going to save money um, as soon as you, you know, re, you know in, in terms of fuel, they pay for themselves. The, right. the prices of these vehicles are coming down. They're going to be cost competitive very, very you know, soon with their ICE counterparts. You know, everyone is predicting cost parity. In the time frame that EPA rules are 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 being um, uh, deployed, um, and and last but not least, during this interim period, you have you know, massive amounts of of government um, incentives and, and consumer incentives that make the economic proposition just just a no brainer. Not to mention, you know, these cars are unbelievably fun to drive. I, I always say that to remind people, it's not like a sacrifice. I mean, it, it, they're exciting and they're sexy and there's just a joy to drive. So I think you put all that together, affordability and the pleasure of driving them and the convenience and never having to go to a gas station and feeling proud that you don't have to consume oil. And I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a win-win-win. We always, you and I always say that. It's a win-win-win all around. I wanted to get in, though. Um, just on the topic of incentives and subsidies, policies that Congress has adopted to help. The incentives in the infrastructure bill are also really important, and they have to do with charging infrastructure and what we need to see on the grid. So can you speak a little bit to what the infrastructure bill helped with? Yes, uh, and, and also the IRA has some limited uh, incentives on, if, on the infrastructure side too. So right. what we're seeing... Um, is uh, a dramatic build-out of the infrastructure needed to support uh, battery electric vehicles. Um, I, I, I should point out, just to digress here, just for a second. Um, you know, the, the, a lot of a lot of the charging is going to occur at home, and a lot of the companies, you know, the charger is is on the vehicle. You can just plug it in. Uh, companies are helping, um, you know, when you buy a car, uh, some companies are footing the bill for for putting a charger in, in your, a fast charger in your, in, in your garage. Um, so a, a lot of what the challenges are, are, you know, that remain are going to be in terms of the, you know, the fast charging public network, which is, which if you look at some of the, the existing map, 
uh, it's across the United States. Is it sufficient to support a fleet of electric, you know, vehicles contemplated, you know, in later this decade? No, but it's it's being it's it's being built out, and 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 I'll give you a couple of examples of how dynamic uh, the marketplace is. Um, just recently, um, Walmart announced uh, uh, that they're going to have uh, chargers across in every one of their stores. And and I didn't know this, but you know, 90% of the people live within 10 miles of a Walmart store. So thousands of stores are going to be getting, uh, getting chargers. Uh, uh, GM announced a program with Pilot um, uh, uh, who have um, uh, you know, refueling stations across the, the the United States on the interstate network? They're going to have chargers across uh, you know several you know several thousand chargers across the country. So th- this, what we're seeing in real time is massive build out, and, and a lot of this is being incentivized by 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 these underlying uh, government policies uh, that are in the Infrastructure Act and and also the RAA too. So. Um, I'm personally optimistic that the infrastructure um, is going to sort itself out. There's a lot of players um, and um, and a lot of incentive on the part of the companies to make this work. You know, I, I was going to say, I think it's unique, and, and you and I have talked about this, it's unique to see the confluence of events here. The, 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 the mo- a moment in which you have Congress passing really important incentives to drive this, spending the billions of dollars needed to help support and drive this change at the same time as you have the industry making commitments for its own reasons because the business model has to move in that direction to be globally competitive and they have to make this change at the same time as you have an administration the Biden administration prepared to set standards as a backstop to help push this forward and you've got policy regulation and market forces moving in the same direction. You and I have talked about that. It's it's quite stunning and it's historic, is it not? Yeah, I, I, I liken it to three legs of a stool. Um, you have the manufacturer uh, investments, manufacturer deployment of ZEVs in the, uh, that they're doing um, uh, because the market's demanding them. You have government policies that are helping um, uh, accelerate it. Um, and you have EPA regulatory policy, which is is consistent with those goals. So uh, this is everyone pulling in the same direction. Is it going to? You know, I I'm 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 an optimist, uh, and I have always been. I I'm very optimistic. This is going to you know this is going to play out in a very, you know in a way that's a win win win. Um, uh, is it challenging? Absolutely. But what's different here is that everyone's pulling in the same direction. And, and I should point out that this is is being done in a way that that is going to benefit. Uh, uh, workers uh, is creating jobs in the United States, and you know, so it, it, it's. You know, I'm personally optimistic that this is this is really, really going to be a, a good news story across the board, and most importantly, the consumer is going to benefit because they're going to get better choices in the marketplace and products that are are have a lot better, you know, are improved attributes in terms of acceleration and, and lower cost. So two final topics before we close. One is politics and the other is legal challenges. Uh, the politics of this are quite interesting. And you just alluded to it when you said this is going to be good for workers. This is going to create jobs. But it's also where these jobs will be created that matters. And I think you know, it, it, it's important that the plants that are being uh, uh, 
planned and the the battery um, manufacturing that's now uh, growing is happening in particular in places that may historically not have been jurisdictions that are especially keen on climate policy, and yet those jurisdictions are going to be the home of new battery plants. Can you speak a little bit to that? EDF commissioned a recent study uh, that looked at um, you know the amount of investments um, and uh, and where those investments are occurring, and um, a massive amount of those investments are happening in the Midwest, in red and blue states. Um, you've got uh, states, you know, obviously Michigan ranks up there, Tennessee, um, Ohio, Illinois, uh, Kentucky. A massive amounts of investments um, in, in terms of manufacturing facilities. So, um, you know, regardless of, of, uh, of whether it's a red or blue state, uh, these there's lots of jobs that are being created in these states as a result of this. And uh, um, and you know, you know, uh, hopefully the politics catch up with that reality sooner than later. So the net effect of all of this investment and market shift may be to build support for policies like this that are actually good for the environment and good for the consumer and good for labor. Exactly, exactly. The final topic is really sort of my my bucket, which is legal challenges. You know, what could possibly go wrong is the question. What could possibly go wrong with this good news story? And, and already we know uh, there will be legal challenges. In fact, there's a pending legal challenge, um, a case, the main argument of which is that the EPA's standards out to 2026, so the prior round of standard setting, um, should be struck down for a variety of reasons. And and one of the main themes is that EPA has gone too far, it's overreaching, it's trying to force electrification. And all of this uh, operates under the banner of a legal doctrine called the Major Questions Doctrine, which the Supreme Court recently announced in a case called West Virginia. And without getting into all the detail of it, I'll just summarize it by saying Supreme Court has made it clear that if regulatory agencies like EPA try to do really big things of major social and economic and political importance, and especially when they look like they're doing something that is sort of out of their lane, you know, transforming a sector into something else or, you know, overreaching in some way that looks very significant, the court is prepared to knock that rule down and suggest that it will need explicit authority from Congress, that broad language in a statute is not enough to authorize these, um, in the court's view, transformational policies. Um, I've simplified it just for us to talk about it. But that has invited a challenge already to EPA car standards the last round, saying, oh, they're transformational, try to do too much, very significant, they don't have enough authority from Congress. So I'm fully anticipating a legal challenge to these standards, Chet. And if somebody, I know you're, you're not, between us, you're not the lawyer, but you've worked for a long time in the agency, you've helped fend off lots of these legal challenges. What would your reaction be to that kind of argument coming at this proposal? Before I ask that directly, Jody, um, going back, I would, uh, for those that are interested, uh, should read um, the brief from the alliance in that case you referenced on the existing standards. Um, they intervene on, on behalf of the government. This is the trade association for the auto industry. An alliance brief, yeah. And and uh, it's a pretty uh, uh, important brief in the sense that they lay out a compelling Arguments on how the agency got it right, uh, and this is this is the re these are the folks that are getting regulated. So I, I think right. that's you know, interesting reading uh, to, to, to 
just as a touch point. And by the way, if, for folks who want to get these briefs, does EDF have all the briefs up on its website for easy access? Uh, I think we do, and I can follow up I think up they with might. You. Anyway, sorry, for the listener, yeah. I'm trying to give them a place to go to find uh, these things. You know what? We'll create a link to it, a uh, link to this podcast is what we'll do to make it easy. To answer your, your, your direct question, Jody, I mean, um, first of all, this sort of circles back to the beginning of our conversation here. Uh, EPA is, has stayed in their lane on this rule. Everything they're doing is is, is absolutely consistent uh, with how they've set standards in the past. There's nothing new here. They're they're exercising their the authority under the Clean Air Act in a way that's uh, uh, is consistent with every rule they've ever done uh, affecting automobiles. Um, and, and I think um, you know, if you look at the case that they laid out in terms of feasibility and, and cost, it is a really, really compelling case. Uh, it's not a final decision yet. We'll, we'll, we'll know what it looks like in the final rule. But the proposal is a really, really good proposal. Um, they've, uh, you know, they try to outline, you know, the key issues in terms of trajectory and things like that for comment. And, um, and I'm sure it's going to be, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, challenging, but, uh, a productive discussion that the agency have with, with all the parties. Um, and, um, uh, last but not least, um, uh, they have to anticipate litigation, but the, the EPA's track record on this in terms of getting litigated and prevailing, they have a really, really solid uh, track record. So I'm personally optimistic. Yeah. I would join your optimism there in the sense that the record um, I expect of the final rule will be very, very strong. The record in supporting the proposal is already really impressive, as you say. And also, you know, this, as you say, is right down the fairway. You know, the the, the agency is doing what it's been doing for 40 years, um, and it's been regulating greenhouse gas, you know, using this Clean Act Authority for over 10. This is all a progression from existing standards. I mean, there are very good arguments uh, to defeat the kind of hysterical, hyperbolic, this is a transformation that is well beyond what can be accomplished. It's just not so. And as you say, uh, to the extent the industry actually supports uh, the final set of standards, um, that can be a really powerful fact for reviewing courts when the industry stands up on the side of, of, uh, of EPA. So we'll see. It'll be a journey through the courts for sure, but uh, we will stay tuned and we will be back maybe to comment on it as things unfold. So, Chet, I so appreciate you coming again to be our guest. Um, nothing I like better than to talk cars with you. And uh, the one thing I will say to stay tuned for is more on trucks, heavy-duty trucks, right? This is a big challenge in the transport sector. They're, they're behind cars, right? It's a tough one. Just, just briefly, can you give us a little picture of uh, of trucks? Yeah, uh, EPA issued on the same day a proposal for trucks, um, and yeah. that definitely a topic. I'd be happy to continue uh, discussing with you. That has a, a, a whole set of other unique challenges, um, and, and, and in some sense, a completely different sector um, that um, that it affects. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, you know, this is a comprehensive uh, strategy that the agency is pursuing in terms of. Uh, addressing, um, uh, you know, pollution from uh, from the transportation sector. And again, just for folks to understand, it's crucial 
to make good on the U.S.'s commitment to address climate change to get a handle on transportation sector emissions. There's the power sector too, right? Power plants, there's oil and gas, methane in particular, but transportation emissions are crucial. And this proposal is really getting at that. So um, we look forward to seeing how the rule develops. And Chet, you and I will be watching. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure. Oh, thank you, Jody. Uh, again, it's a complete my pleasure. I, I, I love these discussions, and um, I like getting into details with you. So um, look forward to our ongoing uh, dialogue on these issues. Okay, that's it for Clean Law. See you next time. Mm-hmm.